This is episode 214 with registered dietitian, marathoner, and the team nutritionist for the Endeavor Run running retreats, Ms. Lydia Nader. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features nutrition and fueling myths from dietitian Lydia Nader. I met Lydia in real life about a month ago at the Endeavor Run running retreat here in Boulder, Colorado, and I was impressed with her knowledge about sports nutrition, her delivery of that, her enthusiasm, and how well she can communicate tricky nutrition topics to runners. This episode features her favorite myths, and she's going to quiz me on whether or not they're true. But first, I want to welcome all of our new listeners. My goal with this podcast is to help you think more strategically about your training, make smarter decisions about how you run, and introduce you to new ideas from thought leaders in the physical therapy, strength training, coaching, nutrition, sports psychology, and other areas to help you keep improving. After all, Knowledge is a competitive advantage. Don't miss Strength Running's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning and our home base, strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've helped tens of thousands of runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses on topics from strength to injury prevention, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you achieve your wildest ambitions as a runner. This podcast is supported by Path Projects, which is fitting because just this morning my six-year-old made fun of me for wearing all Path gear at breakfast. What can I say? They make some of my favorite t-shirts, base liners, and shorts. They use innovative lightweight fabrics that are stretchy, they wick sweat, and help you worry about your run instead of your gear. I also love how durable their shorts are. Check out all of their gear at pathprojects.com. We're also supported by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you and then offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that are outside of your unique optimal zones. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com/strengthrunning. Our guest today is registered dietitian Lydia Nader. She got her graduate degree in nutrition and wellness, her registered dietitian certification, and now coaches athletes on how to optimize their nutrition. She's a volunteer coach for Girls on the Run and has completed an ultramarathon, numerous marathons, and has interest areas in weight loss, body composition changes, and female health, such as amenorrhea and red S. Lydia was also the Endeavor Run Running Retreats nutritionist, helping us eat great for the four-day retreat last month in Boulder. During that retreat, she gave a presentation on 10 of the most popular ideas in sports nutrition that we may have to rethink. This episode includes many of those ideas, and for fun, she's going to quiz me as we go along to find out if I can spot the truth. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Ms. Lydia Nader. Hi, I'm excited to be on the podcast and talk a little bit about nutrition and maybe bust some myths. Yeah, well, I'm excited to have you, Lydia. We had such a great time at the Endeavor Run running retreat just a couple weeks ago. You gave an amazing presentation on 
a whole bunch of running myths that a lot of runners believe. And what I loved about it is that they weren't the same kind of myths we've been hearing over and over again. A lot of them, you know, there's shades of gray, there's nuance. And I really appreciated the kind of in-depth look at a bunch of these myths and how they can be 10% true and 90% false and how you kind of have to make it work for you. And so what I want to do today is talk about those diet and fueling myths that can really derail runners. Because if you're training for something really big, if you are a performance-oriented runner, you have big goals, you want to run a great PR, you do have to get your fueling right. And that's not just what you're doing out there during a long run or a workout, but it's also what you're doing throughout the rest of the day and making sure that you're properly recovering and fueling up for the next workout. So I'm so excited about this. And maybe we can just dive right in and talk about our first running myth that some runners might believe. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I start, if you remember from the retreat, I start off with a big one and the myth or the statement, you know, all of them kind of start off with a statement. And these are usually statements that I've heard athletes say to me. Um, and so I try to myth bust it with those individuals. Um, so the first one is sugar is bad for athletes. Have you heard that before, Jason? I sure have. And I'm not entirely sure if that's a complete myth or a partial myth. Yeah. And it's, well, it's kind of like, it depends, um, honestly on the individual, on the athlete, but ultimately the way I always like to approach this kind of statement or this myth, um, is that it is primarily false. Um, sugar is a form of energy that can be really quickly utilized by the human body for when we need it most. So, uh, at certain times and certain training periods, sugar can be a really good tool, um, to use and have in your tool belt, such as when you're running a race and you need quick fuel and you don't need something that's going to take a lot of energy for your body to digest and absorb. You need something that is quick in the system. Your body doesn't have to ex ex um, use extra energy because um, it's already using a lot of energy running a marathon or a half marathon or an Ironman or whatever it looks like. Um, so you want something that's quick and easy. Well, that's sugar. I think as much as we want to try to get a beat around the bush with that and sugar's bad, um, that statement oftentimes does come from a outwards uh, influence, you know, diet culture and what non-athletes are focusing in on on their health, you know, can seep into the athletic community really easily. Um, and oftentimes that can kind of confuse a lot of athletes. So ultimately, sugar is bad for athletes, a complete myth, because it's a great tool to be used for athletes when they want quick, easy energy sources uh, for their performance. I'm going to go off script a little bit. What if you had asked, is sugar bad for the average person? Maybe someone who's not running a lot, they're not exercising a lot. What about in that case? Yeah, in that case, I would say it is it is bad. It's, you know, I don't like to use good, bad labels oftentimes, especially when working with the average population, um, just because there is oftentimes, uh, you know, poor relationship uh, with our foods, um, especially in Western culture. 
but I would say it's bad. It's not something that, you know, someone doesn't need to drink a Gatorade if they're an average population. They shouldn't be utilizing Powerade on an average. They're just going to the gym for, you know, 30 minutes or they're walking around the neighborhood and with their dog. That's not a time to go and drink a Gatorade, you know, but the person who's going out and doing a hardcore workout on the track and then, you know, they need something like quick and easy to get a little extra pep in their step for that last couple of reps. That's could be a great time to utilize something like Gatorade or sugar or things like that. So yeah, for the average population, I'd say it's not the best for them. I tend to think of sugar as probably the most high energy fuel that a human being could ingest. So it's going to be really good at fueling high intensity exercise. And so whether or not it's healthy is sort of a function of how much hard exercise you're doing. Is that a, a a decent way of thinking about sugar as sort of like, you know, gasoline for your car? You know, you don't need much if you're not driving around very much. But if you're going on a big road trip, guess what? You're going to need a lot of gasoline. That's a great way of putting it and thinking about it. And I think too, like, you know, I always like to use when people say like, oh, well, I don't fuel on runs and I don't take in sugar. You know, I always like to use Kipchoge as a great example because he takes in sugar in large, very large amounts for when he broke the world record in the marathon. So if someone like that, who a lot of people highly respect in his sport, he's the goat when it comes to endurance running, you know, he takes in almost 100 grams of sugar uh, per hour, if not a little bit more than that, oftentimes when he's competing. You know, sugar like that in is is highly utilized for him to go that longer distance. Like you said, he's going on a longer trip than just kind of a quick, easy sprint around the block. Yeah, my my 30 minute jog around the neighborhood probably doesn't demand 50 grams of sugar halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I think your body has enough stores to get you going through that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's move on to our next diet myth that potentially runners might believe. Yeah, so. I get this statement a lot. Training for a marathon means I can eat whatever I want. Yes, please, Lydia, tell me that that's true. If the (laughs) fire's hot enough, it'll burn anything, right? Right. That's a great way of thinking about it. Um, So once again, it is a, it depends. So it comes down to your goals. Um, You know, if I ultimately had to choose an answer, um, I would say it doesn't mean you can eat whatever you want, but it should mean ideally that you understand the nutrition that you're taking in and understand the food and how it fuels you. So for example, if I have an individual who's training for a marathon, who wants to also use that marathon training as an opportunity to lose weight, well, that individual probably shouldn't be eating whatever they want when they're training. We'll focus in on higher protein, making sure that they have complex carbohydrates, um, and making sure that they have healthy fats to help with kind of keeping them full, but also protecting their body as they're increasing mileage without necessarily having to dive more into their higher carbohydrates. But then if I have an individual who wants to run, uh, you know, Olympic uh, time trial qualification time or a PR or, or something like a sub three hour marathon, that individual, you know, they could probably eat whatever they want within reason, because their body is at that higher level that really needs that energy. And sometimes whatever they want, I put quotations around that um, means that they need to be taking in a lot of, you know, extra snacks throughout the day, you know, whereas normally, if they were an 
off season, they probably wouldn't be snacking. They would think that's bad to snack throughout the day and to graze. But realistically, they're training, you know, they've got, you know, anywhere from 50 to, you know, 80 mile weeks. And so they're training a lot, which means you're asking a lot of your body. So you can eat whatever you want to help fuel that. But we want to make sure there's an education behind it of making sure it's complex carbohydrates, making sure it's quality proteins, healthy fats like avocados or nuts or seeds and things like that to give your body different forms, not just saying, hey, go eat pizza and donuts and cookies all the time. But there should be some pointed purpose behind what you're fueling with. You know, it's funny, all of the pro runners that I've ever talked to about their diet. And, you know, I I have a couple friends who you know, they're like 220 something marathoners. So they're not elite runners, but they're, they're quite competitive. And the general diet that almost every single one of these runners eats is, is, is a generally speaking healthy diet. You know, it's not a formal diet in any way. There's no name for it. There's no branded sort of proper noun for the diet that they're eating. But on top of that healthy diet, yeah, they might have some cookies or some ice cream every every day and 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 I think that's the big difference is that you know they are trying to eat healthy but they will also splurge a little bit and give themselves some fun foods and treats so that you know they don't feel like they're restricting themselves and I think like you said if you're running you know 8 miles a week you know you have more flexibility to be eating some of those foods Absolutely. And I think too, it's that idea that that's their job. And so they want to take care of their body. And part of taking care of your body is the mental side of that relationship with food. And so if you feel like you're depriving yourself, you know, if you can't go out to ice cream with your teammates or your friends or your family that maybe aren't professional runners or that higher level athlete, then that can put a very like higher stress, higher anxiety on you both mentally and physically too. So by having that balance, you allow for a better relationship with your food. You don't feel deprived. And honestly, I can speak from personal experience here, you know, not everyone's this this way, but when I maybe have, you know, a birthday cake or ice cream because I've had a celebration, if I ever run the next morning, man, I feel really hot pep in my step because I've got a little extra sugar in my diet that kind of give me that extra pep to kind of keep me going. So sometimes it's that extra fuel in the tank that just kind of gives you a little bit more energy. Yeah. And especially if you're working out every day, but not just that, some of these, some of these high level runners are, are working out twice a day. You know, sometimes that's a lifting session in the afternoon or cross training with a bike ride. Often it's two runs per day. And so those kinds of athletes surely can take some more liberties with their diet. Does it also depend a bit more, not just on your goals, but, you know, on how you process food at an individual level? And, you know, I I think I'm an extreme example. I'm the classic ectomorph. I have the stereotypical runner's build. It's very difficult for me to gain weight, even if I want to. And I do start eating whatever I want. And and I've done that before. And it's not pretty, but I I still don't really gain too much. So is it kind of depend on not just your goals, but you know, your, your genetics and how you put on weight and what, you know, you really can eat. 
Yes, absolutely. It it does make a big difference on knowing your body and knowing, you know, you know that you can eat kind of whatever you want in a sense and not see any weight gain necessarily. Whereas some people know that like if they're going to eat higher amounts of sugar, if they're not highly active, they could see some some weight gain and um, excess adipose tissue put on. Whereas other individuals are like, I run better on, on fats. And that doesn't mean they have to go on a ketogenic diet and put a label on it, but maybe they just incorporate more healthy fats into their diet because they know how that makes them feel, which really comes down to that kind of, we talk about break down that myth of, you know, eat whatever you want when you're training for a marathon. It is primarily about like, how does food make you feel? It comes down to ultimately that too, not just what your goals are and how you're purposely fueling, but also like, how does food actually make you feel? How do you digest it? I know people who can't eat broccoli or cauliflower or asparagus because it causes some excess gas and bloating in their body. Well, that doesn't feel real good when you're when you're running. So that's also kind of plays into it. So it's a multi-layer kind of response response whenever someone's like, oh, I can eat whatever I want whenever I'm training for higher endurance activities. Eating is very much like pacing in that it takes a while for you to really understand the nuances of it and for you to understand how, you know, your body relates to it and and how that can change over time. So maybe this is a good trial and error type of issue where (laughs) you kind of just have to try some things and see how it makes you feel. Yeah. And sometimes it takes people like, you know, 50 some marathons before they actually say, hey, I should pay, maybe get my nutrition um, under wraps too, or kind of understand my how my food affects my body in my training. Um, or maybe it's somebody who's doing their first marathon. They're like, I want to get it right the first time. You know, it just depends on where someone's at with that. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't take you 50 marathons. That seems like learning the hard way. (laughs) Well, I've definitely had those types of clients to be like, I've done 58 marathons, and then they come to my front door. So, (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm loving this, Lydia. Let's go on to our next myth. Next myth, I don't need to eat anything before a run. Oh, fasted running. I think that that is false. It's probably helpful to always eat at least something small before a run. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Yay. You got, I, need, I feel like <laughs> I, I need like signs. Yeah. Like um, you win. Um, yeah. So that's definitely true because um, that you you do need to eat something before you actually run. And there's there's actually scientific reasoning behind that. It's not just like, oh, you should be getting extra calories or you need that extra energy. But yes, you do need those things. But also when we work out, it's a higher amount of stress in our bodies. And so when we experience stress, whether it be from exercise or it be from environmental, so job, relationships, whatnot, Stress impacts our body about the same, whether no matter what type of um, uh, input of that stress is coming from. So that means your cortisol levels oftentimes increase. Many people hear about cortisol. There's a ton of research still happening on cortisol because it's a stress hormone that we're still trying to figure out a lot more about because it's kind of newer-ish on the scene of research. But one of the things we do know from an athlete standpoint is that cortisol can spike when we are working out. When we're out there, we're stressing our bodies out, that we're trying to stress our bodies out so we can adapt to it to get stronger. Um, And so cortisol levels can spike. Well, we know that if you eat something like, you know, a a sugar or a carbohydrate of some kind, so a banana or blueberries, or this is what the research they specifically used a banana and blueberries um, that, you know, I've seen. But things like that, it actually helps with leveling out the cortisol levels. So 
by leveling out your cortisol levels, it actually prevents your body from actually just storing energy and rather it encourages it to use energy. So it basically says, hey, I actually have the energy coming in right now. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use this energy rather than trying to store it and maybe not use as much energy that you already have stored. So oftentimes it encourages a usage rather than a storage. Um, for a lot of individuals, this can come into play where you don't really see it. So it doesn't really, you don't notice an impact. But for a lot of individuals, if they maybe have like a midsection, they really want to like tone up or they struggle with, you know, losing weight in that midsection higher levels of cortisol from not necessarily consuming something before a, you know, especially intense runs. So like an in tempo or speed workout or even a long run um, that can sometimes hold itself in that midsection area, especially for female athletes. So this is why I always encourage slowly training the gut to actually take in something before your actual run, because it's going to be beneficial for a multitude of reasons, primarily being hormone health. Yeah, this is the issue that I struggle with a little bit more because I just am not really a big breakfast kind of a person. And so, you know, the earlier it is, the less likely I want to eat. So if I have to get up early, and I, and I actually struggled with this a little bit at Endeavor Run, where we'd get up early, we'd go for a run. And, you know, I remember meeting at the track at like eight o'clock to do a workout. And I had had half a banana at that point, which probably wasn't enough food before a track workout. You know, I was... I felt fine. I think if we measured my cortisol, it might be a little bit more elevated than it should have been. <laughs> but for, for those people who do struggle to eat more in the morning, it, how do you recommend that we get out of that habit? Is it as easy as just kind of gradually training yourself to eat a little bit more and a little bit more? Because I know the gut is pretty trainable. Yeah, it is. It's just like any muscle, you can train it. Um, and it's exactly that. Um, starting a little bit and then building up like a half a banana. That's usually what I recommend. Someone start with like half a banana, do that for, you know, a week or two, and then maybe make it a full banana. And then, you know, kind of build up that, that tolerance or that ability that your body can digest and absorb faster. Um, and then you can even add in like peanut butter later on. And then, you know, maybe it's banana and peanut butter on a piece of bread, or then you can have oatmeal because your the fiber is not as impactful on your gut. So there's kind of levels of training your gut um, that can really work in your favor. This can also work well too, is if you aren't an early riser, then your primary goal would be to train your gut to uh, digest and absorb, you know, the amounts of food at a faster rate comparative to I'm just going to wake up earlier. And I'm also going to like, people will wake up earlier in addition to train the gut with higher quantities of food too. Because you don't start off with being able to you know, digest and absorb and use 80 grams of carbohydrates right out the gate, you know, a new marathon or something like that, isn't going to be able to utilize that. They're usually on the lower end of that. They're like 15, 20, 25 grams per hour. So that's going to mean like, a banana is about 30 grams of carbohydrates. So we say that's why we say it, like start with a half a banana, then a full banana and slowly train that gut to be able to utilize that energy because you can train the gut to actually take in more fuel. And the benefit of that is when you do it for pre-workout, it actually helps for during that workout. So you can actually take in more fuel while you're actually out there racing, while you're out there for a long run. And what that does is actually increases your ability to perform at a higher level. 
I think too, one of the overlooked benefits of fueling properly before a run is the fact that you're getting carbohydrate and calories into your system earlier that's then going to help kind of jumpstart your post-run recovery. Because if you go into a run, especially a more intense run or a long run, and you're fasted, for example, you're just putting yourself into such an energy hole that the pre-run fueling and maybe some fueling during, especially a longer run, would just really help with the recovery side of things because you're just getting in those calories even sooner so that you can utilize them during the workout and then any excess is just going to go to restocking those glycogen stores and helping with recovery. Yeah, exactly. And I think too, it also plays into like, if people want to get stronger, they have to build muscle in order to do that. Well, part of that process of if you add like things like peanut butter or peanuts or, or something with a small amount of protein prior to a run or a workout, you actually can start that muscle protein synthesis before even, you know, you have that recovery shake afterwards, or you have that recovery refuel afterwards. Um, so that's something as well that plays into it that can be really beneficial for an individual. Yeah, I think that's probably something that I would have to really think about if I wanted to put on some additional muscle on my frame because I need all the help I can get. It's <laughs> it's so hard for me. And so I probably need to be pumping myself full of protein early and often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ryan Hall method. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there you go. All right, um, let's talk about our, our next myth that we talked about during that presentation. Yeah. So the next one um, is eating before bedtime makes you fat. What do you think, Jason? Well, if that was true, I'd probably be much bigger than I am right now. So I don't think that one is true. <laughs> You're exactly right. It is not true. Um, and the reason this kind of goes into that first myth we talked about with sugar, because it's a myth that has kind of gotten its way into the athletic community from the general population. We've all seen it and heard it like, you know, don't eat after 6 p.m. You know, it's your body's going to, you know, make that into fat, all of these different things. And that's actually not true at all. There's like, it's kind of like the, you know, do 10,000 steps. It's kind of this number that somebody just grabbed out of the air and there's no scientific backing to it. Um, so people got to watch out what they're Googling of how to kind of watch that. But the main reason it's not even true for your athletic population is because you are asking a lot of your body all day long. And you're probably going to still be hungry after 6 p.m. Unless you're somebody that goes to bed at like 7 p.m., which if you are, I'm amazed and great. I would love to know what your secret is, but that's probably not a reality for most people. You're probably going to bed maybe 9.30, 9 o'clock, 10, 11. If you're even later, you know, maybe you're a high school athlete who has to study or you're a college athlete or you're just somebody who has late projects they have to work on for work and you're still like have to get up early the next day, you probably need to be fueling after that 6 p.m. time frame. And it's not going to be utilized and put into storage as fat. It's going to be used for you to actually fuel your muscles because your muscles are the ones who are asking for that energy. It's like, hey, I need energy to do what you're asking me for tomorrow, what you ask of me today. So having an evening snack is actually super beneficial for athletes. And I actually recommend it, especially if I'm working with someone who's training for half marathon or a marathon. 
because they're probably it's that area in the evening where they can add in those extra calories that are actually going to help them recover better on an on an all day basis. Um, and it also there's the added benefit of it'll help improve sleep. If we choose certain foods, it actually improves the production of melatonin and serotonin in the body, get more quality sleep, you recover a little bit better. So what are some of those foods that you can eat at night that might positively affect your sleep? Yeah. So almonds are one of them. Um, and really thinking about, if we talk about nutrients, we talk about protein, um, is a, is a primary one for going before going to bed. Um, so almonds are a great one. Um, doing like peanut butter on a piece of toast is a great one, a whole grain piece of toast. Um, you can even do like Greek yogurt, you know, a small portion of Greek yogurt. Um, and then like some berries. So antioxidants help with the production of melatonin as well in the body. So those are just a few of the ones that I oftentimes will recommend for individuals. Yeah, I love that. And and it also seems to me that if you're eating a, a dinner at say 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. Or, or even 7 p.m. and then not going to bed until 10 or 10.30, you know, if you're training really hard, your recovery is going to be limited overnight because you're all of a sudden you're going to wake up hungry and your muscles are going to be starved for energy, like you mentioned. And so it, it seems to me that this is also a recovery issue because, you know, when you're sleeping at night, that's when most of the recovery happens. That's kind of the the golden time for recovery. And if you're in a, a calorie depleted state or, or even just when, you know, you're, you're kind of sleeping, but you need calories and you need more energy. You're obviously not getting it because you're sleeping. That could really impact your recovery, right? Exactly. You're not only not getting enough calories, and I think that's something sometimes people forget is that your body is still like keeping you alive. And in order to keep you alive while you're sleeping, for your lungs to, to go, for your heart to pump, all that stuff, your brain is still firings too, you know, all those things require calories or require energy. So your body still needs that stuff. And if it's not getting it from your daily nutritional intake, guess where it's going to take it from your muscles. So a lot of times it's a preservation of your muscle mass too, um, especially for individuals um, who are trying to, maybe they're trying to get faster or stronger. Sometimes that's that muscle mass that makes that difference. So it is a preservation of muscle. It's also important to remember that you're also slightly dehydrated when you wake up because you, once again, like you said, Jason, you're not getting the nutrition or the hydration you need while you're sleeping. And so you wake up depleted in many areas, not just nutritionally, but also hydration wise. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so it's probably a good idea to, to have a fair amount of water right when you wake up. Is that right? Yep, exactly. So I know a lot of times people will see like, oh, drink a glass of water before you wake up. And there is validity to that because getting the hydration to start off your day. So for someone who maybe pushes back on trying to take in nutrition before going out for a run, you know, let's utilize liquid nutrition because you're going to get your hydration in to start the day off. And then you don't have to wake up necessarily as early because it's a lot easier to digest. There's absolutely no fiber involved in it. Um, and so that's a way you can kind of pre-fuel a little bit better too, to have that hydration beforehand. I think it's really interesting if we look at bodybuilding, a sport that is so opposite of running and see how bodybuilders will even choose a specific type of protein to have right before bed. I believe they like casein protein, which is from 
uh, a type of dairy protein. And that's because it's digested more slowly. And so what they're doing is essentially giving themselves time released protein over the course of the evening or course of the night as they're sleeping, because they'll have a protein shake right before they go to bed. And that's sort of an extreme example. But I, I think it's a great illustration of the fact that people who are exercising at a very high level are thinking about the fact that if they sleep for eight hours, that's eight hours with no nutrition, no hydration. And at least the bodybuilders are really trying to still get in that steady drip of protein throughout the evening hours so that when they wake up, you know, their, their muscles haven't been, you know, reduced in size because they're, they're needing more energy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's talking about casein, you know, they can get really specific with the supplements they're taking. But that's why like Greek yogurt, for example, is a great example, because it has that casein in it, and it has a higher amount of protein. So that way you can kind of get that time, slow time release type of protein intake um, prior to without necessarily having to lean into supplements all the time. Oh, that's interesting. Lydia, this is so fun. I feel like you're sort of interviewing me and testing me on my <laughs> nutrition and diet myths. So let's keep going. Yeah, I was gonna say next question then. Um, a plant-based diet does not provide enough nutrition for an endurance athlete. Maybe. Maybe. That's a great way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good answer. It's like A, A, uh, yes, uh, B, no, C, maybe. Um, multiple choice here. Um, so yeah, maybe is a great response because there are individuals who are not getting enough nutrition and they are plant-based. Um, that does not mean that it is a across the board, if you're plant-based, so vegetarian, vegan, that you cannot get the nutrition you need. Oftentimes, the number one thing of why a plant-based athlete, endurance athlete, is not getting enough nutrition is they don't understand their food and their choices ultimately. Um, so that's the number one reason that I, I have seen why plant-based athletes, endurance athletes, are not getting the nutrition they need. Because you can absolutely be plant-based and be purposeful about what you're consuming and get all the nutritional needs that high protein, you can make sure you're getting plenty of healthy fats, um, and you can make sure that you have good gut health, all of these different factors, you can get all of that from you know, plant-based, um, both vegan and vegetarian. So it's, it's oftentimes I've found that plant-based endurance athletes, when they decide to go that direction, it's once again, influence from outside, um, uh, voices that are not athletes of go plant-based. It's healthier for you. And, you know, I'm not here to say yes or no to that, that response, but a lot of times when people make that shift, they don't necessarily go further into education of how they can make sure they're getting still the nutrients that they need that from their plant-based sources. So for example, protein is usually a lot lower in, um, especially if I'm talking to like a female athlete, endurance athlete, and they're plant-based. And I get a lot of these, and they're just not getting enough protein. So they're not seeing changes in their body composition. They're not seeing improvements potentially in their, um, in their muscle mass recovery. Uh, well, let's just be more purposeful about where those protein sources are coming from, making sure that we're having a variety of protein sources. So we mix it up. And once we make those shifts and we allow for them to be more purposeful about how they're getting their nutrition, doesn't mean we're throwing in protein powders and supplements. We're actually using real food first and foremost. Those individuals start to see and feel that difference in their body. And then they start to be able to make those changes on a long, long-term basis. 
it does seem like you could potentially be deficient in more nutrients on a plant-based diet because it's just a little bit more difficult to get certain nutrients and they're less bioavailable. Uh, they're just not in the same quantities or concentrations as in some more you know, uh, animal-based foods. So what are some of those specific nutrients that might be deficient in a plant-based diet? Yeah. So on a macronutrient level, protein is the big one. From a micronutrient standpoint, um, we have iron, we have zinc, oftentimes that might be a little bit lower, um, potentially even probiotics. So getting those live bacteria, because we may not be getting that from, you know, unless you're having kombucha or things like that, um, you know, you're not necessarily getting those live bacteria um, as much from your food. Um, also too, um, you're going to get a little bit less of, uh, magnesium as well, potentially, depending on what plant-based sources of nutrition you're getting. You know, if someone eats the same thing every day and they're plant-based, they're probably missing out on a whole lot of other nutrients. So oftentimes if I, again, working with someone, I'll say like, Hey, let's start off with a multivitamin to just kind of bridge the gap for a little bit while we train you to have behaviors to ultimately get you to having different types of foods and having versatility in your diet. It seems like variety is even more important in a plant-based diet. What are some of the foods that might address some of these nutrient shortcomings? Yeah, so big ones are going to be from a protein standpoint. I always like to lean on nuts and seeds because um, they also are going to contain some zinc and magnesium, like I mentioned, but as well as the proteins. Um, also going to be like edamame is a great um, source of protein as well. It's a quick add on to a lot of different dishes from salads to grain bowls um, to, you know, they make cold salads, it can be hot, you know, all those different types of things. Also utilizing like whole grain types of nutrients. Um, so, you know, your quinoa, your um, buckwheat, all those types of things are going to have a lot of protein in addition to the complex carbohydrates. Um, other nutrients, like I mentioned, iron. Um, everyone knows the spinach. They eat a lot of spinach and everything. But like you were, you're saying, bioavailability of that spinach becomes limited. So a great example of this is if you are someone who's plant-based, who does need a little bit more iron and you're trying to get it from your food, whenever you have uh, any form of um, iron, whether it be from other dark leafy greens or it's be spinach or, or beans or whatnot, you should always pair it with something that has vitamin C. So a few examples would be like a spinach salad has some strawberries or some citrus. The vitamin C actually helps with absorption of that iron from those plant-based sources. Another example is if you have beans, have some bell peppers. They, a lot of times those are both combined in chilies. There's a reason for that. It helps with the absorption of the iron from those beans. Wow. I'm learning so much. This is great, Lydia. I think I'm also ready for my next quiz question. <laughs> so carb loading is necessary for endurance athletes. I might say it sometimes is. Yes. So sometimes there's a lot of it depends here today, isn't there? <laughs> that's my, that's, I think my new catchphrase. I think that's what I learned. Uh, that's my takeaway from the Endeavor Run Retreat was it depends is my, uh, is my catchphrase, but yes, absolutely. So if you're a male endurance athlete, then carb loading can actually be really beneficial for you. If you are a female endurance athlete, it actually can be less beneficial to you. 
And this is comes down to hormones, and I'm not going to get too in depth on this, but it does play differences with the hormones with having carb loading be effective for individuals. So we, the research has shown that it's way more effective in performance for uh, and beneficial for male athletes comparative to female athletes. There's also the level of true carb loading is really hard to do. Um, it really means that you have to increase your carbohydrate intake almost by like 25 to 50% of what you're already doing every day. So I tried to do carb loading um, back in the day. I was doing a little test when I was running the Boston Marathon in 2019. And so in order for me to kind of reach the carb I needed, and I needed to consume upwards of 300 to 400 grams of carbohydrates in that day minimum, just to kind of reach that number that was considered carb loading, which for everyone listening to achieve true carb loading, you have to get seven to 10 grams per kilogram of body weight to actually achieve what is carb loading in the human body. So I had to get a ton of carbohydrates. Well, you can only eat so much pasta um, and you can only take in so much fiber without it starting to give you a tummy ache and start to have some GI issues. So oftentimes what I was doing while I was prepping and trying doing this little experiment with myself for Boston Marathon, I was taking in a ton of fruit juice. I... Full disclosure, I really don't drink a whole lot of fruit juice unless it's around like high mileage timeframes or it's going into race day and I utilize it as a quick energy source. But I was drinking so much fruit juice because there was no fiber and it was a way to get quick energy. I was like on, on like a sugar high all day leading into the Boston Marathon, but it's really hard. I didn't necessarily notice any difference in my performance the next day as I kind of figured would happen, but I wanted to test it out. Um, but it's really difficult to actually achieve carb loading. And I think we all come, if we did a uh, cross country or we did high school track or something like that, we come out of those experiences with this idea that carb loading is a necessity. And even at those shorter distances that you were doing in high school or um, at the high school track or cross country, carb loading is not a necessity for those individuals. You should be consuming carbs on a regular basis to assist you, but you don't need to be carb loading in order to run a 5K. Let's talk a little bit more about the sex differences with carb loading, because you said it's it's going to be pretty beneficial for men because of their hormonal profile, and then it's less beneficial for women. I was struck by the phrase less beneficial. Does that mean it's still beneficial, but just not as much as it might be for a male? Yes, because it depends on where they're at in their hormone cycles. So the primary reason is because men have higher testosterone and lower estrogen, their bodies utilize carbohydrates way more effectively, meaning that you digest and absorb and use it really easily. Comparative to women, when our estrogen is higher and our progesterone is higher, we actually don't utilize carbohydrates as effectively. Our bodies actually prefer higher amounts of fat intake because that fat is actually a better source of energy during high periods of estrogen and progesterone. So the depends is if you find a female who is in her menstrual cycle period, so pre-ovulation, then oftentimes that individual pre uh, carb loading could be really beneficial for that athlete because their body is 
quick to absorb those carbohydrates and will use it actually in that time frame. So that's where, if, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about, um, you know, Dr. Stacy Sims talks about there's certain athletes who will um, plan out their, you know, try to manipulate their menstrual cycles. So that way they have race day on, you know, when their menstrual cycles are going to be so they can utilize carbohydrates more effectively. So there's that also that manipulation that comes into play, knowing when carbs are actually going to help you be at your best. This makes me think of the fact that the longer the race, the more competitive women are with men. And I think there was a study done years ago. Lord knows how accurate it was because it was essentially like, at what distance do women surpass men? And it was like 180 miles, 200 miles at the race distance. And I wonder if this issue is partly uh, to, to, you know, the, the credit for that is the fact that women are just better at using fat for fuel. And those extraordinarily long races, you know, are going to require a lot of fat for fuel. So I, I don't I just think that's so fascinating. Well, and I think we're getting into a time period where that's becoming more of like peaking people's interest because we do have those female alternate athletes who are crushing the field, who are doing who are in the top 10 person 10 finishers. I mean, I know, um, there was just at uh, UTMB, um, Courtney just set a new record um, at the, a course record for UTMB. And she was finished top seven, I think, out of everybody overall. And it's just like women are getting faster and faster at those longer distances. And they're able to outlast the male, um, their male counterparts. Um, and I think it's exactly the hormones are we're, that's where we're realizing hormones play a lot larger role in an athlete's performance um, when it comes to the differences for males and females. Yeah, for sure. It's just so fascinating. I, I I think the hormonal side of performance is something that we don't know as much about. And I would love to learn more about it because I think that is going to unlock a whole new era of performance just because, you know, whether it's, we're talking about growth hormone or testosterone or, or even estrogen, they all impact performance. And I think if we know which hormones are beneficial and, and how they're beneficial and at what times we can better manipulate our own hormonal profile. And we're, we're going completely off base here, but I, I just, I love talking about some of these things that might in the future give us an extra edge with our training. Yeah. We'll see where, you know, when we listen to this podcast, you know, 10 years down the road, what it's going to look like for an athlete training these days, are they going to be, you know, tracking their hormones a lot more um, intensely? Yeah. Fascinating stuff. We'll, we'll keep this for posterity and go back to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Lydia, let's do one more question for me, but I, I love it because I really hope our listeners are, are pausing the podcast right after you say your statement and, and they can get in their guests too. So let's do our last one. Yeah. So the last one is refueling must be done within 30 minutes of finishing your workout. Ooh, see, I have heard an hour. I've also heard an hour and a half. I tend to think that sooner is better. So I'm going to say that this is true. Yes, so it is true. Um, so it's not so even a myth. <laughs> it's not. I tricked you. Um, <laughs> that's the teacher in me. I got to trick a little bit with some of these things. Um, so 
it is true that you do need to be refueling in the most ideal time frame is within 30 minutes of finishing. And this is primarily because this is when your um, your uptake of glucose is at its highest within that 30 minutes of finishing a workout, which means you can take in more energy to recover faster. Um, it also means that you want to make prioritize protein as well within that first 30 minutes. Don't leave out the carbohydrates, but you do want to prioritize getting in more of that protein because that's also when your muscle protein synthesis is at its uh, highest amount of production, basically. Um, you can still gain a lot of benefits if you do it within an hour. Um, and a lot of times it is said to be within an hour. And when I first started out, I would tell people an hour, but more and more, the research is showing, especially hormonal impact. So it can be cortisol, it can be estrogen for women. Um, all of those things do play a role in that recovery timeframe. So being able to um, take in some protein as well as carbohydrate within 30 minutes of finishing, you actually increase your recovery window. So your body's ability to take in energy, um, as well as improve your muscle protein synthesis synthesis um, time frame as well. This reminds me of our discussion earlier about fueling before and during exercise. It, it very much makes me, it just reminds me that if you need to refuel within 30 minutes, you are so ahead of the game if you've been fueling during the run the entire time. So, you know, I don't know, does that give you more flexibility to extend that 30 minute window, I tend to think that we should still just kind of adhere to a, the sooner, the better sort of a mentality when it comes to refueling post run. Yeah. So yeah, if you do that pre-fuel and the during fuel for those really intense type of workouts, and I also say when intense, I usually see those as the most crucial. Those are where we build the fitness. That's where we get the benefits from, you know, yes, easy runs are beneficial and they do have their purpose. But when we have track workouts or we have tempo workouts or we have long runs, that's where we're putting our blood, sweat, and tears into. And those are ones we want to get the biggest bang for our buck. And that's where that pre-fuel, during fuel, and, and then you get a larger window afterwards if you do that pre and during fuel for those more crucial types of workouts. Do you think there's flexibility to have almost any kind of carbohydrate right after exercise in that 30-minute window? You know, I'm kind of thinking of the fact that you're probably more depleted at the very end of a run and could stand to have a glass of juice or, or have some more simple carbohydrates? Or do you think it's still a time where we should, you know, really err on the side of more complex carbohydrates? No, you have more flexibility, honestly, because your body is primed at that time frame to actually use it. So it's still like kind of, kind of a, you know, run through the finish kind of feeling like your, your body doesn't just like stop the workout. It's still kind of recovering after you've crossed the finish line, you stopped your watch. And so you actually have that opportunity to utilize fruit juice. If you want have some fruit, um, when it's hot and humid and I finish a workout, you know, oftentimes all I crave is fruit, um, just because it is, it's, easier for me to take in than maybe go in sitting like uh, sitting down and eating like hot oatmeal or eating like, you know, some hot dish, like those sorts of things. So having something like a uh, fruit or fruit juice or a smoothie, I'm always a big fan of smoothies um, afterwards, because um, it's going to get you that simple carbohydrate. So you can take in a lot more of that than you can too, if you do more complex carbohydrates due to the fiber content. 
Yeah, I, I love after a hot summer run, I will typically go for a small glass of juice. And my two go-tos are unpasteurized orange juice because it just tastes unbelievably good. And I really love carrot juice. The two of those are so good for me. And when you said, uh, you probably don't want oatmeal after a hot run, that, that's when you started laughing because I, if only this was a, a video, my face during that was probably priceless. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody really wants like a hot dish after like a really hot, humid run. And, you know, here in Chicago, where I'm located, we just kind of got through like a super hot, high humidity um, stretch about for a month. And today is like nice and cool weather. So I'm saying that after coming out of like a month of pretty intense type of humidity and heat where every time I finished, I just wanted a smoothie. I wanted something cold. And it usually is like fruit in the refrigerator, fruit juice, um, or it was, um, you know, some, just some fruit. You know, I also love putting apples in the fridge because the, the crispiness and the fluid in the apple and it just being cold is such a satisfying sensation after a hot run. So that that's a great tip for anybody who struggles with what to eat maybe after a run. I love a cold apple. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also good too, if you don't have an appetite when you finish, because that also brings up another great topic for refueling within 30 minutes um, after a workout is a lot of times people struggle with, well, I'm not hungry. I hear that a lot. Like I'm not hungry when I finish. And I'm not saying that you need to force feed yourself, but you kind of do have to force feed yourself because you do miss out on a prime time to actually build muscle to recover. And you're, you, I always like to say, you're, if you have a coach, you're paying that coach. If you're putting your time and effort into getting up early, going to the track, getting up early and going out there, going in the middle of the day, you know, while your kids are sleeping and getting in that, that intense workout, don't you want to gain the biggest bang for your buck and the most benefit out of everything you just put into the effort you put in? Well, that's where that nutrition, it's I kind of like sealing the envelope on a workout is that recovery afterwards. So I always like to tell people kind of like, paying attention to if you refuel and you have those things ready to go, then you can kind of seal the envelope on that workout and feel like you actually did your best both in the workout and post. Yeah, I love that. That's a great point. Because, you know, honestly, who cares what the workout is, if you don't refuel afterward, you know, another good example is if you go out and you get three hours of sleep that night, you might as well have not done the workout because you're not going to recover properly, you're not going to really adapt as much to that session. And your training might be compromised in the one to two days afterward because you haven't recovered as well. So you're probably going to feel sore. So it's almost like taking care of the lifestyle that must surround your training to make that training effective. Because if your lifestyle is getting four hours of sleep and, and not eating well, and especially not timing your food properly around your big training sessions you know, that really undermines your, your training in such a big way that I think any runner who has big goals should be very aware of. Yep. Yep. Totally agree with that. Lydia, thank you so much for this tour de force of diet knowledge. I really appreciate it. And this was a great encore to the presentation you did at the Endeavor Run running retreat. Um, I, I love your perspective on food. I think it is so pragmatic and just no BS. Uh, and I think our listeners might want to learn more about your work and what you do and kind of the stuff that you do uh, online, because I know you create a fair amount of content as well. So where can folks find you? 
Yeah. So folks can find me on Instagram. Um, and my handle is fuel with Nader. Um, just like fueling. I'm all about, you know, I don't necessarily talk about calories and things like that. I talk about energy and fueling your body because no matter what your goals are, that's an important, um, mindset to be in. And then also my website fuel with Nader.com, um, are places they can find me. Um, primarily. I think I want to get more into the videos. I don't have a YouTube channel quite yet, um, but getting there eventually. Cool. Well, I'll include links to your website and your Instagram handle from the show notes on strength running. Lydia, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And there is my conversation with dietitian Lydia Nader. Be sure to connect with her on Instagram at fuelwithnader or at her website, fuelwithnader.com. You can find links to these resources and others on Strength Running. I also want to thank our sponsors who are helping make this show possible. Inside Tracker wants to help you do what you love for life. They want you to be a successful, healthy runner for decades. They were founded in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers, from stress hormones to testosterone to vitamin D, can help you figure out if you're overtraining, undertraining, or optimally training. But the best part is that they give you personalized, optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers, and a whole host of ways to improve them through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've personally gotten two ultimate tests from them. I'm sitting here at my desk looking at my DNA kit that I'm about to send back to them for my third test, and I'm very, very excited. For a limited time, too, you can get 25% off any test at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. And this is a big deal because these tests are admittedly not cheap. So stack the odds in your favor. Give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to save 25% today. We're also supported by Path Projects. I love a lot of things about Path, from my amazing shirt that has mountains on it, what can I say, I'm from Colorado, to the fact that they separate their shorts and baseliners into two distinct products. That means there's no chafing. And with different lengths and fabrics for both, you can customize the type of short experience you'd like based on your personal preferences and the type of run that you're about to start. They use proprietary fabric that's incredibly durable, stretchy, and moisture wicking. So if you ever see me around Denver on the weekend, you'll probably see me in my Path Projects Sykes 5-inch shorts. I call them my adventure shorts. Check out all of their shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear at pathprojects.com. Right now, I'm wearing a t-shirt that has an elevation map on it. I just love how different it is from my other gear. You can see everything at pathprojects.com. All right, guys, that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for listening, for subscribing, and for leaving your review on Apple. I so appreciate you. Until next time, 